listening to Rights Up, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Dr. Njodi Donyema, Modern Law Review Early Career Fellow at the University of Oxford and Research Director at the Oxford Human Rights Hub. In today's episode, we talk to Savala Chopchinsky about racial hierarchy and the role of whiteness in the Black Lives Matter movement. This episode is part of a four-part series in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. The Oxford Human Rights Hub is an anti-racist organization, and we are committed to continuously working to be better allies to our black brothers and sisters who are resisting, organizing, and protesting for the realization of their basic rights. The horrific murder of George Floyd in the United States Uh, turned world attention towards the scourge of endemic police brutality perpetrated against black communities and communities of color. It also exposed the complicit cruelty of white indifference. These are not new issues. The struggle for racial equality has been the unforgiving work of generations. The heavy mantle of justice yet to be served has been carried across centuries by defiant peoples whose only demand is the recognition of their basic humanity. We can all do better. We can all do something in our small yet significant corners of the world to support this imperative. In this spirit, this podcast series aims to amplify the voices of black and brown scholars, activists, and practitioners. We also want to acknowledge the long legacy of work that has collectively, across time and disciplines, built and bolstered the foundations of this present movement. Now is the time to listen, to learn, to support, and to amplify. We feel privileged at the Hub to have such a diverse and critical community of scholars and practitioners to call upon to share their expertise. But we also know that we cannot become complacent and we must constantly ask, who is missing? How can we do better? In addition to being in solidarity with black peoples across the world, we at The Hub hope to always answer by creating meaningful space to ensure that others are seen and are heard. Savala Trupchinsky is an author, lawyer, and executive director of the Thielton E. Henderson Center for Social Justice at the University of California, Berkeley. She writes and lectures on structural racism, implicit bias, and understanding whiteness. Her new book, A collection of essays on race, gender, and the body will be published in 2021. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Savala. Um, And uh, just to start off, um, we're considering the role that racial hierarchy plays in perpetuating inequalities. Um, So to start off with the basics, what is whiteness and how do its privileges manifest? 
Well, first, I just want to say thank you so much for inviting me to have this conversation with you today. I've been looking forward to it. And um, I love this question. I love thinking about whiteness and talking about whiteness um, because it's something, at least in the United States, which is where I'm from and where I live and work, um, to where my knowledge and observations are rooted, it's something that in the United States we don't tend to talk about very much. I mean, it it sort of operates our lives in many ways, and yet we don't have a strong vocabulary to talk about whiteness or um, a robust understanding across the board of what it is. So I love this question. Um, and, you know, the answer is both really simple and very complex. Um, on the more simple side, um, and, and I should add, you know, before I opine that um, there are books and scholars and articles and a, a whole literature about what whiteness is and whiteness studies. So if people are interested in really digging into it, there's ways to do that. But for conversational purposes, um, you know, at its simplest, whiteness is just a category, right? It's just um, one way that human beings categorize each other and separate um, themselves from each other, like any other category. It's an identity, right? Of course, it's a it's a racial category, um, and it's one that's that's incredibly important um, because it operates as an identity on such a powerful level, right? We have other categories that are sort of rooted in the body and rooted in phenotype um, that are are not as meaningful. You know, we don't. We don't think of things like um, whether someone is tall or short as being incredibly determinative um, and sort of existentially important the way we think of racial categories. So a few other things that I, I like to mention when I'm talking about what whiteness is, you know, just sort of at a high level, um, it's important to remember that whiteness is made up. It's not real. Um, it's a human invention. It's a human construction. Of course, that doesn't mean it's not important, right? Um, money and time are also made up. Those are human inventions that are not real. Um, and yet money and time, you know, govern much of our lives and our um, key parts of the architecture of how our daily lives and how our institutions and cultures unfold over time. And the same is true of race and of whiteness. Um, I'd also add that whiteness um, is an exclusionary category. It's an exclusionary identity, um, meaning that not everyone can have it. And um, in the United States, you know, we still operate under this rule that one drop of black blood or non-white blood makes you black or makes you non-white. So whiteness has this false and strange but, you know, historically useful notion of purity embedded in it and of um, being an exclusionary identity. Whiteness is malleable, at least in the United States. Um, different groups come in and out of whiteness. Um, you know, historically, there, there were immigrant groups that came from Europe who were legally deemed not to be white and then slowly became white over time. 
Um, and even today, you know, we just had a presidential election. You may have followed it. And um, there's a lot of conversation about the Latino and Hispanic vote that uh, went to uh, President Donald Trump and how much of it came um, from Cuban Americans and Florida. And, you know, the important thing to understand about one of the important things to understand about that is that um, many Cuban Americans and many Latino people view themselves as white. So whiteness has it's exclusionary, but it has a, a changing malleable quality. Um, a couple other quick things I would add is that whiteness is an, it's an unfairly privileged identity. You know, it comes with all kinds of goodies that it doesn't merit any more than any other racial group would merit them. And in the United States, you can't divorce the category of whiteness um, from our history of chattel slavery and the aftermath of chattel slavery. So those are a few um, qualities of whiteness that, that I think are, are useful to kind of have in your pocket when you're thinking about race and how whiteness functions, especially in the United States. Mm, that's really, really helpful. Um, as you referred to sort of the, the manifestations of, 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 of whiteness, particularly in American society. Why do you think um, whiteness as um, a social construct that has remained at the top of the racial hierarchy uh, has been so enduring? Um, and how does it manifest itself uh, today? I think the simplest answer to why whiteness endures is because it benefits the people in power who in the United States um, are often white and, you know, power concedes nothing, right? Any kind of power concedes nothing. Um, what's the incentive for people who happen to be at the top of some particular hierarchy to dismantle the hierarchy, <laughs> Right. I mean, there are incentives, right? As you get into kind of ethics and morality and what it means to be a human being sharing the planet and all of those things. But um, if, you, if you're if you not going to dive into those deeper, almost um, moral and spiritual aspects of a hierarchy um, or the human rights aspects of a hierarchy, then, you know, if you're at the top, it's all good, right? So part of why whiteness endures is because um, there's there's little incentive, um, at least in the way we talk about these things in, in my culture, there's little incentive, there has been little incentive for white people to let go of whiteness um, and to dismantle the, the racial hierarchy that we live under. For people of color, the incentives are a lot more clear, right? Because the racial hierarchy or the racial caste system, um, as I think you can also call it, uh, you, you know, we're on the losing end so often. Um, you know, you talk, you asked about how, how sort of these, these hierarchies tied to whiteness and, and all of that, how they show up and they, you know, they show up everywhere. Um, it might be a more kind of interesting question to think about where they don't show up. <laughs> like, could we find a, a, a part of the culture or, um, a part of how we live where racial hierarchy is not present. I mean, it's present in medicine. It's present in um, 
you know, job interviews, it's present in the carceral state, it's present in housing education or uh, housing segregation rather, and, and the sort of segregation of public schools that flows from that. Um, it's present in COVID-19, right? You know, it's everywhere. It's sort of the water that we're swimming in and um, it's baked in. So the trick is to kind of, you know, how do we get uh, enough white people to um, be interested in divesting from a system that harms them too, because it, it locks everybody into a certain kind of a structure. Um, but that also benefits them. That's, that's a question we haven't really figured out. And that I don't think enough people have um, wanted to figure out right for up until now, maybe, hopefully we'll see. That's that's a very uh, poignant point that you make, where you highlight the harms that whiteness causes, um, and white people are often um, said to be blind to their whiteness and the privileges that whiteness affords them as they navigate in society. Now, the greatest harm um, is is probably uh, the manifestation of whiteness as violence, uh, and we've seen that um, in um, in the summer uh, of past, particularly in the U.S. Um, so perhaps we can just explore uh, why whiteness um, uh, manifests in violent ways against uh, Black bodies and uh, people of color. Wow, that is an incredible um, question and point that you make, that whiteness so often man- manifests itself as violence against uh, black and brown people and black and brown bodies. And, you know, in in this country, in the United States, um, not that the UK doesn't have its own version of this and its own history with these concepts of colonialism and slavery, but I I have to speak about, you know, what I know. So in the United States, um, where whiteness emerges kind of as part of the infrastructure of chattel slavery and as a way to um, uphold that system and justify that system over time, you know, the the violence is inherent, right? The violence is foundational. We're talking about trafficking human beings. We're talking about um, everything from torture to assault to murder. You know, the, the violence is it's almost so huge that it's, it's overwhelming to try and articulate it. So um, there's a sense, you know, in a sort of deep historical sense, if we're looking back a few hundred years um, to when chattel slavery was getting going in this country and when whiteness was sort of coming into being as a concept, um, the violence is, it's, it's stitched into it. It's knit into it. It's inescapable. Um, and I think that it, you know, it persists today because we have never fully reckoned with that. Um, you know, to the contrary, we all sort of are taught that whiteness is kind of this benevolent, superior, um, pure thing, again, to get back to that idea of an exclusionary identity. And that, that doesn't seem to go along with violence. So there's, you know, the violence is kind of baked into the notion of whiteness. Um, and then we're taught that it's not. <laughs> we 
we're taught that uh, it's like, who are you going to believe me or your lion eyes? You know, we're taught that, that what we're seeing is actually not, not real. Um, and, you know, in this, in this country where I live, the myth of linear progress is so strong. I don't know if it feels that way in the, in the UK too, but there is a strong sense of sort of always marching towards a more perfect union and um, wanting to kind of uh, wipe our hands of the past and act as though it's, it's not still definitional in the present moment. Um, And because of that, there's this, there's this tendency to think that um, violence and whiteness are no longer connected um, when in fact they are. And the violence is sometimes more subtle than chattel slavery, you know, sometimes that violence against a body looks like white medical students actually believing that Black people feel less pain than white people and therefore um, prescribing pain medication or even diagnostic tests with less frequency, right? So it's, sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's not subtle, sometimes it's Breonna Taylor um, and George Floyd, but we it's almost as if we think, well, if it's not chattel slavery, it's not really violence, you know, even though we like to look back on that time and tell ourselves, um, oh, well, it wasn't that bad. You know, there's a lot of um, amnesia and confusion around whiteness and violence um, that I think, I think we're starting to unpack. I just want to add, because it's, it's really important um, for me to make this point that I I am I am not talking about white people as violent. Of course, there are white people who are violent. Like there's every kind of people who are violent. Um, I'm really talking about the system of whiteness that governs um, so much in our society in terms of how resources are spread out, who gets what kind of advantages, who gets sort of pushed aside, um, and who is deemed not to matter or be as valuable as someone else. So I don't want to give the impression that I'm saying white people are, are violent. I'm saying that we are all caught up in the system of whiteness in one way or another, and the system itself is violent. And if you are white, um, your position in that system is different than mine. Yeah. And uh, uh, just coming to, to sort of, uh, understanding whiteness and um, sort of the positionality of white people um, and and sort of the growth in language around white fragility, white guilt, um, critiques around uh, this leading to a us versus them narrative um, and deepening political polarization uh, in society, which in the U.S. has clearly been exploited um, do you think these critiques uh, warrant uh, uh, merit, uh, and uh, how would you respond to those who critique sort of this us versus them narrative in emphasizing the whiteness of white people? You're right. I mean, it is a popular critique, right? That if that if you talk about race, you somehow make it worse. Um. And I don't think that's true, you know, but that is, that is a critique. I think um, if you refuse to talk about race, you make it worse. You know, it's sort of like if we're all living in a building and the building is on fire, um, but nobody wants to talk about 
fire, <laughs> like that doesn't make the fire go away, right? Um, we have to be willing to say the word fire in order to put out the fire. Um, so, you know, I view that kind of instinct among some people, especially white people, to want to move away from this conversation as um, really a manifestation of, you know, some of the kind of buzzwords that you you said a moment ago of white fragility and of white silence. You know, white people are very often insulated from thinking about themselves as racialized people. And so they don't often have the chance to develop the same kind of vocabulary and even um, the same type of vision that people of color develop, right? And when I say type of vision, I mean um, a person of color can can sort of spot a racialized issue pretty quickly because we have to be able to do that as a matter of survival and because we're taught to do it for better and worse. When you're white, you don't have to be able to pick up on uh, racialized issues and, and moments of racialized tension, violence, privilege, whatever. Um, you're just not taught to see them. So it's not surprising that down the line, you know, if somebody starts saying to you, well, we really need to talk about race and for your whole life, um, you have been told in a thousand ways, subtle and overt, that you don't need to think about race or, or even worse, that you ought to be colorblind. Um, of course, there'll be some resistance among some people, right? Of course, it will feel like wandering into the weeds or kind of getting off topic or, division to people who aren't, you know, well-educated and well-versed in the reality of the racialized nature of our world. You know, I think one of the really, really tricky and unfortunate binds that white people find themselves in is that they are taught, you know, that their whiteness is of essential importance to who they are, um, almost on an existential level, you know, but they're not, but at the same time, they're told to never talk about it or think about it. And that's just an extremely odd place to be. You know, if you and I grew up in a world where, you know, the people in power always had curly red hair and the people we were considered beautiful always had curly red hair and anyone without curly red hair, you know, lived in the wrong side of town and couldn't get the same medicine. And, you know, if you and I had curly red hair, we would learn we would see that we would learn to associate um, the trait that we have with the good things in the world where we see the trait showing up. But if we were told that we could never ever discuss curly red hair and we should act like we don't even see it. I mean, what an odd, what an odd place to be mentally, morally. And uh, I think that's where a lot of white folks have been. And I, I also think that hopefully we're, we're starting to unwind and unpack that very, very slowly. Um, so moving on to sort of a race equality and human rights law, uh, what protections are there in the U.S. Constitution um, which can be used to advocate for race equality and to combat discrimination um, on the grounds of race, particularly, which manifests through uh, whiteness? And, and and white supremacy. 
the laws are many. Um, they're in, they're inadequate, and I'll get to that. But on a federal level, on a state level, and of course in the Constitution, um, you know there are dozens of legal provisions that are designed to um, prevent racial hierarchy from harming people. You know whether in the Constitution it's the Equal Protection Clause. Um, or in terms of federal law, there's the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, you know, and many states have um, similar provisions, right, within their own constitutions and, and their set of laws. So we have at least a basic legal infrastructure for protecting people of color, protecting Black people, and preventing white supremacy or, or white racial, you know, hierarchy to run amok in theory. Um, but they're, I say they're inadequate, you know, for a couple of reasons. One is that these types of laws are only as effective as the people who are interpreting them. And, you know, there are instances where you may have a right um, in theory, but there's no teeth to it because you can't, there's no way to vindicate the right, you know? Um, if you don't have access to lawyers, right, who you would need to vindicate the violation of a right um, or to remedy the violation of a right, the right isn't all that useful. So there's issues of access in addition to um, questions about who is going to be interpreting these laws. If it's someone who's skeptical um, about the value of the law, if it's someone who is an out and out racist, if it's someone who is not an out and out racist, but who nevertheless um, is rather unsophisticated and they're thinking about racial caste and racial hierarchy and therefore um, not possessed of a strong vocabulary or not able to sort of know it when they see it, you know, in terms of racial discrimination, then the law is, is going to be less effective for that reason too. You know, many of these laws in the United States grew out of um, overt, facially horrifying examples of racism, you know, undeniable, unquestionable examples of racism that was plain on its face and um, that's not always the case now you know those those two examples I mentioned earlier of um, on the one hand you have overt things like Breonna Taylor's murder happening or George Floyd's murder on the other hand you have more subtle things happening like medical students um, somehow believing that black people don't feel pain at the same level that white people do. Um, both of those obviously have an impact and obviously are rooted in our particular form of racial hierarchy, but the law is um, better suited to handle the overt examples of racism um, that, that necessitated the law in the first place. And it's less agile when it comes to things that are more subtle or kind of squishy or, well, I don't know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, depending on who you ask. The laws is just not that agile when it comes to unconscious bias, for example. So, you know, we have the protections, but they're insufficient in many ways. You know, they're necessary, but they don't 
they don't do the whole job. You mentioned uh, Breonna Taylor, um, and I think alongside George Floyd, the circumstances of their deaths um, really indicted the law, if I can put it that way. Um, and you as someone who is clearly um, sort of working within the realm of the law, and uh, you are based at Berkeley Law, you are dedicated to social justice. Uh, so I assume that uh, you still recognize the relevance of law um, in as much as law has failed to address things such as redlining, for example, in the U.S., um, uh, do we need to look beyond the law for solutions to issues around racial inequalities, injustices that uh, Black people continue to experience in spaces such as the U.S., where you do have a sophisticated um, legal uh, landscape? I think we do need to look beyond the law. And and by the way, yes, I do I do still assume the relevance of the law. You know, not the omnipotence, right? Or and not the uh inherent, you know, unassailable wisdom of the law, but yeah, I do think it's relevant. Um I think, you know, laws are uh opinions, right? They're just the notion of people who have some power um, about what they want to protect and what they don't think needs protection. Um, and so their own interests are often very well taken care of. And then, you know, sometimes there's pressure and there's enlightenment that, that um, leads people to want to protect things that, that are not necessarily in their direct interest. Right. And, I think that's kind of how you get civil rights laws um, passed, you know, but uh, the laws are made by people and they're interpreted by people and they're enforced by people and people are flawed. And so laws are flawed. Um, Law can't be the solution to a human problem as deep and as dynamic and as varied and as persistent as racial hierarchy. It's part of the solution. You know, it's got to be part of the solution. Um, Otherwise you're living in, you know, an apartheid or, or a chattel slavery situation, right? Otherwise it's, it becomes inhuman. Um, But because laws derive from people and are interpreted by people, we, we also have to work on all the other aspects of, of what it means to be a human being. Um, I think, you know, we have to work on um, ethics, morality, spirituality, if, if that's relevant to a particular person, um, because the laws just flow out of human beings and what we believe and what we want to value. So um, to ignore the kind of richness of, of of a human being um, beyond legal thinking, you know, we do that at our peril. Certainly, it's it's not enough to just have laws that help. You've got to go beyond laws. I, I like that you introduce us to to the shared humanity across uh, geographies, across uh, national contexts, um, and I think uh, perhaps this is a good time to reflect on. Um, the adequacy or otherwise of international human rights laws in promoting racial equality um, uh, meaningfully in a domestic context such as uh, the U.S.? Yes, I think that um, 
we have a lot to learn and to embrace from the human rights model um, that that countries outside the United States, you know, have a, a, a more robust relationship. Um, certainly not every country, but, you know, there, there are countries that have a more robust relationship with the idea of human rights than we have in the United States, I, I think. Um, and where the notion of human rights is sort of, it's just diffused throughout the culture and, and people are more familiar with it. Um, you know, I should, I should say here, I am not a human rights lawyer and I'm not a human rights scholar. So um, my knowledge is limited, but I do think that a lot of what we do in the social justice space in the United States um, is essentially human rights, um, you know, at its core, right? It's, it's about the, the, the reality that we all have certain um, rights simply because we're human beings and, and we're alive. And there's a universal, um, a universality and a, a way that these rights are, are not alienable, right? They can't be taken away um, so long as we're alive. I think that, you know, one of the interesting things about the United States is that we tend to view rights as things that are derived from God, um, often a Christian God, you know, in this culture, or as uh, things that are derived from the state, right, that are granted to us by some powerful um state entity. And neither of those things is like wholly consistent with the human rights framework, right? Um, I think that we're, we're, for a variety of reasons, we're less familiar with and comfortable with this notion that, you know, no, um, our, our inherent dignity and value does not necessarily come from the state saying that we're valuable or from a particular God, but, but just from being alive, just from being a human being. And, um, there's such a beautiful, um, morality or spirituality there, you know, depending on how you want to think about it, that I, I think is really essential if the United States is, is going to move beyond racial hierarchy in a sustained, powerful way. Um, it's not that in places that are have a more robust i you know sense of human rights in the culture they don't have race problems right i'm not trying to say that it's a panacea um there is no panacea i think it's an all hands on deck um type of movement and type of moment where lots of different disciplines and lots of different architectures are necessary um including the international human rights framework that's really insightful and 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 you refer to sort of the inherent humanity of of black people of of people of color that they do not need the vindication of their humanity because a specific uh, state instrument or international treaty says so but yet uh, sort of moving on to the movements that have arisen as a result of the police brutality um, that has been perpetrated against black bodies in the US why then uh, did it take a black man, George Floyd, being killed uh, in the most horrific way 
for uh, international attention to be brought on this issue of police brutality and racial inequality um, when it has been uh, a pervasive issue in the U.S. and all around the world? I think that we are going to be thinking about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, although she's gotten somewhat less attention, um, and this summer that unfolded in the United States for a long, long time. You know, I think I think we're going to be unpacking and dissecting so many things about 2020 um, in the years and decades to come, and I don't know exactly why. George Floyd's murder um, seems to ring a bell, you know, around the world um, in a way that that many other killings and many other examples of violence didn't. I mean, I think Emmett Till's murder and um, the open casket that his his mother chose at his funeral, you know, maybe I wasn't alive at that time, but maybe sort of had a similar. washed over the world and the culture in a similar way. I don't know exactly what it was about George Floyd's murder. Um, You know, certainly it was so astounding to see, um, to see someone be killed over a span of nearly 10 minutes. Right. Um, that is not something most people are used to seeing, right? We're used to seeing like maybe a gunshot in a movie or, you know, um, but to see someone applying, you know, the lethal pressure of life taking to someone else for almost 10 minutes, um, you know, it, it was astounding. So it's possible to me that this sort of, callousness um and the the casualness of how he was murdered was just so unconscionable to people that um there was nothing to do but respond in a big way around the world but you know black bodies have been brutalized quickly and slowly for hundreds of years in this country so um I don't exactly know, you know, I do think that in the United States, we are literally starting from um, an assumption that Black people are not fully human. Like that is the historical assumption that is built into this country, right? Um, we, We can't get around that. Of course, if you walked down the street and asked, you know, a hundred Americans, are Black people human beings? Probably a hundred of them would say yes, absolutely. But we have never really done the work of fully excavating um, that sort of cancerous growth, right, in the culture, that this totally false, totally grotesque notion that Black people are not quite as human as everybody else in some indefinable way. And so, you know, that's another reason why I think the the human rights framework where you root the value and the dignity of someone's life 
and their right to safety and all of those things in their humanity is potentially so powerful here, but also um, doesn't stick as much here because I truly think that on some level, if we, if we believed that black people were as deeply, beautifully human as white people, if we really, truly, truly a hundred percent believe that we couldn't stand for the state of things, right? It would, it would be unbearable to more people. You know, this notion of us being unable to stand the state of things, uh, I think um, spoke particularly to white people and the, the power that their whiteness uh, gives them in society. Um, and, you know, of the many sort of sound bites that came out of uh, Black Lives Matter, you know, you hear things such as uh, silence is violence, um, white uh, complicity and so forth. So what role should white people uh, seek to play in movements such as Black Lives Matter? Um, and how does their absence from um, actively participating in su- such uh, movements perpetuate um, racism and particularly anti-Black racism? Well, I think that... Um, first of all, I'm excited to see so many of my white brothers and sisters and siblings um, seeming to want to take up the fight, right? Um, being out in the streets, wanting to do this work alongside us and with us. I think that's wonderful. And I think it's totally necessary. Like there's no way we're going to Um, shake ourselves free of racial hierarchy without the involvement of white people. They have to be part of it the same way that, um, you know, to speak with generalization, men have to be part of ending sexual assault against women, right? Like you just can't do it by teaching women how to not be assaulted. You also have to teach men how not to assault. Um, And I, I know that assaults happen across all types of gender lines. I'm just, you know, speaking in a generality to make a point. So we need white people's engagement. I think that the, you know, there's two things that I think white people um, can and should do if they want to be involved in movements like Black Lives Matter. You know, the first is to follow the lead of Black people in the space. Um, The Black people in the space know what they're doing and they are leading the space from deep experience and um, deep knowledge and deep vision. And it's important to um, be willing to be led if you're white in that space, as opposed to uh, needing to lead yourself. Um, Another thing I think white folks need to do is the really difficult, um, sometimes emotional, sometimes spiritual, often cathartic, transformative work of unpacking their own relationship to white supremacy. Um, A deep and ongoing inventory of how white supremacy shows up in their own lives um, and their relationships and their spaces and their preferences. and their choices and their dreams and their fears. And there are many, many tools that um, exist to help white people do that. So one of my favorites is a book called Me and White Supremacy 
by Layla F. Saad. Um, and it's, essentially it's a workbook for people who are white or hold white privilege. I mean, I'm talking a deep dive, a really deep dive into unpacking how racial hierarchy shows up um, in their lives. And the reason I think white people have to do that is because they they do not have the same level of education in this topic that black and brown people um, have. They just don't. They're sheltered from it. And if they run into a space of racial justice activism um, without having some vocabulary and training and understanding, they can do more harm than good, even though they don't mean to. You know, it would be like if I rushed into an emergency room with no medical training and insisted upon helping the nurses and doctors, um, as well-intentioned as I might be, I'm liable to do something wrong and, and make things worse unintentionally. So white people have to do some homework and unpacking of their own to be really um, positive forces in these spaces. In, in an article that you, you wrote that has gained quite a lot of traction, um, you implore white people uh, to be twice as kind to black people and people of color. Um, why do you focus on kindness and uh, what do you hope uh, this can achieve? Um, I focus on kindness as a sort of unappreciated um, racial justice strategy because it is easy and it's accessible and it's free. Um, and it actually makes a difference in the day-to-day lives of Black people and people of color. Um, you know, we know what kindness looks like. We understand the sort of basics of being kind. Um, we don't always understand what racial equality looks like, you know, especially white folks. They don't always understand um what it what it you know what a question I hear all the time from my white friends is but what do I do you know how do I how do I stop being a part of white supremacy um and that's a complex question it's a good question and there are many 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 strategies all of which are important kindness I think um is a fairly intuitive one Um, you know, my daughter who's five years old understands what kindness is and she understands how to be kind. What I say in this article is that, you know, for people who hold unconscious bias against black and brown people, which is basically everyone, um, being purposefully kind and purposefully twice as kind um, could be a way to counteract some of that bias. You know, if you imagine the doctor or the young medical student who has the unconscious belief that Black people don't feel as much physical pain as white people um, and is therefore less likely to order a diagnostic test or to prescribe treatment, um, if that same doctor walked into the room with their Black patient with a purposeful intention to be twice as kind as whatever their instinct was, you can see that perhaps some of the time it would make a difference um, in meaningful ways. And it makes a difference in sort of the silly little ways, the small little moments that, you know, over our lifetime are not so small and silly. 
um, that story grew out of a kind of a microaggressive interaction I had with a white woman who lives on my street um, and intentionally adding a little bit more kindness, friendliness um, can take some of the sting out of daily life for black and brown people of color, you know, to be on the receiving end of white kindness is quite lovely. Another thing I say in that piece is, of course, it, it can't just be performative kindness. It has to be rooted in some intentionality and something deeper. You know, um, I'm not from the South. I don't know the South very well. But when I've been in the deep South in this country, I, I it's always strikes me how polite people are, um, white people and Black people, even amidst, you know, an enduring sort of architecture and structure of racism that is so intense. So it can't just be about appearing um, to be polite. It has to be kindness in a, in a deeper sense. Hmm. Uh, it's a really powerful um, idea and sort of outlook and um, way of leading one's life, um, especially sort of uh, recognizing the, the societal structural issues that um, certain groups face. Black Lives Matter, rightly so, shines a light upon race-based uh, discrimination and inequality and violence. Um, how can we ensure that we have uh, an attack on inequality that manifests in society uh, running in parallel on different fronts, um, you know, um, gendered uh, inequality, sexual inequality, geographic inequality, economic inequality, class inequality, and so forth. There's a, a quote from Audre Lorde um, where, where she says, there's no, there's no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. Um, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that's, that's the gist of, of her quotation. And indeed it's true, right? We can't, um, we can't expect to, to pursue kind of separate silos of liberation um, and get very far because none of us live single issue lives, right? I'm a woman, I'm black, I'm fat. You know, those are three things that are often kind of ticks against me in the culture. On the other hand, I'm cisgendered, I'm able-bodied, I make a good living, you know, so I have some privileges too. Um, I think that if we're going to, I mean, if we can dare to imagine a world that we've never seen where people are free, <laughs> I mean, it, it almost is, it almost feels, uh, too dreamy to say it, but if we can dare to imagine that, um, then of course the journey to arrive in that space and the process of creating that space has to be multivalent, multidimensional, um, and deeply intersected and interconnected because human beings are and human relationships are. So I hope that um, as people sort of dive into this space of unpacking and dismantling racial hierarchy and trying to imagine and create a world without racial hierarchy, um, that all the many issues and identities that are attached to race sort of come along for the ride, you know, um, because if, 
it doesn't work to just sort of fix one. We have to kind of fix them all at the same time. And that's what makes this work incredibly difficult. I mean, it's one of the things that makes it incredibly difficult. Um, But it's also what makes it accessible and welcoming to everyone. Everyone has an entry point into these um, struggles and these acts of creation because they touch everyone. That's that's a an excellent uh, point to conclude on. Um, thank you so much, Savala, for for taking the time to um, talk to us on, on this um, important understanding of racial hierarchy and whiteness uh, in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, uh, you, you referred to your book; uh, it, it's upcoming, I believe. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe it's upcoming too, <laughs> unless there's been a change of plans. Um, it will be published in. July of 2021 by Simon and Schuster. So just a few short months away. And it's a book of essays um, about race and gender and the body and a lot of the really juicy stuff that we've been talking about um, today. So I'm super excited for that. And I thank you for letting me mention it. Um, and, and Jody, this has been such a lovely conversation. I, I wish we could do it again tomorrow. I'm just really thankful for the chance to talk with you and um, to be on this podcast. Thank you so much, Savala. Rights Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. The executive director is Kira Ullman. This episode was co-produced by Natasha Falcroft-Emmis and Christy Calloway-Gale. Edited by Christy Calloway-Gale and hosted by me, Jody Nguyen. Music for this series is by Rosemary Ullman. Show notes for this episode have been written by Sarah Dobby. Thanks to our production team members, Sandra Fredman, Megan Campbell, Monica Morango olaya and Gauri Pillay for their valuable feedback in putting this episode together. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts.